Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. Today we look at the travails of the Trump administration, in particular with regard to the investigation by Special Counsel Robert Mueller into Russia's involvement in the 2016 presidential election. But I'm also going to look at the growing row over gun control. And joining me on the line from Washington, D.C. is our chief U.S. commentator there, Edward Luce, and here in the studio, former Washington correspondent Jeff Dyer. Now, uh, Ed, you wrote uh, this week that you think that this is not going to go away and that Trump is not going to be able to shake this investigation off. It's following him around throughout, really, his administration. Yeah, I mean, the latest sort of flurry of indictments last Friday of 13 Russians working for that St. Petersburg social media troll farm, the Internet Research Agency, is a sign of deep seriousness on the part of the Mueller investigation. But it's only really scratching the surface of Russia's alleged thought to be involvement. And the biggest piece of which Mueller has yet to address is, of course, the hacking of the Democratic National Committee headquarters and of the Clinton campaign of John Podesta. And once Mueller gets into the indictments on that, then you get far closer to the bone in terms of alleged criminal conspiracy between members of the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence agencies via WikiLeaks. And there's a tremendous amount of circumstantial evidence on this stuff. So it's still relatively early stages in the Mueller investigation. He has, I think, inoculated himself against being fired because that would now be a directly pro-Russian thing for President Trump to do. And he's yet to get on to the really meaty, serious stuff. So we're talking another year here. And in fact, Trump had tweeted, I think, rather hopefully some time ago that Mueller was about to wrap up. But he said that that was going to happen in January. And as you say, we're now in February with no end in sight. There's a sort of great war, you know, August 1914. This will all be over by Christmas spirit in the Trump camp. And it's pure wishful thinking. And Jeff, I mean, the other thing that Trump has said repeatedly in his tweet storms is there's no collusion, there's no proof of collusion. And obviously, that is the potentially fatal charge for him that his administration worked, or his campaign rather worked with the Russians. Do you think he's actually on reasonably firm ground there? I mean, as Ed says, there's a lot of circumstantial stuff, but there doesn't seem hard evidence of collusion yet. Well, it's true that the Mueller investigation hasn't publicly displayed any of that evidence to us, but that doesn't mean to say that it doesn't exist. And in some ways, the most important bit of information for the last week might turn out not to be in the indictments of the 13 Russians that Ed was talking about. It's the fact that it appears that Rick Gates, who was the vice chairman of the Trump election campaign for a while last summer, and the summer of 2016, has turned state's evidence. And he was a sort of close and long-time assistant to Paul Manafort, the campaign chair. So if Mueller is going to prove that there was a conspiracy, that the Trump campaign was working in cahoots with the Russians in the way that a lot of this information was released to incriminate Hillary Clinton, 
it's a quite high chance that Paul Manafort is likely to be one of the central figures in that because he has such close ties. The previous decade, he had worked for a very pro-Kremlin political party in Ukraine, knew a lot of the people in Russia. So if there is going to be a link, it's quite possible that Manafort is the key person or one of the key people. So if his aide is now potentially going to give evidence against him to the Mueller inquiry, that might turn out to be the most important thing that's really happened in the last week or so. And of course, Ed, talking about Manafort and Gates, that brings us back to the convention that you covered, the Republican convention, where the rather hostile bit of the Republican platform to Russia was rewritten, we know, at the behest of Manafort. Indeed, Manafort got the language on Ukraine-related sanctions watered down, and that was the only piece of the Republican um, platform that the Trump campaign changed very tellingly. They had zero interest in any of the language, barring that in which they had acute and I believe very telling interest. But Jeff's absolutely right about Rick Gates. And I think the sort of key there is to get Rick Gates to turn Paul Manafort. What Mueller wants is Paul Manafort, who faces a decade in prison for the charges already leveled against him by Robert Mueller, to turn him state's evidence against the Trump campaign. And when that happens, then it's a whole new ballgame. And Rick Gates is obviously the key to that. And the Trump people, I mean, as far as I can see, you know, I don't follow this nearly as closely as you, but seem at times to feel almost beleaguered. I was speaking to one of Trump's confidence, I suppose, over the weekend, who said, well, the president's very outgunned. He's only got two lawyers and he's got this whole team of ace prosecutors aiming at him. Do you think there's anything in that? I do. If you look at the attorneys that Mueller has gathered around him in the last few months, he has got the top financial forensic New York brains there, the most experienced sort of bench you could possibly assemble. And there, of course, is a whole whole nother iceberg that we haven't yet touched upon, and which is the financial dealings between the Trump Organization and Russia. And so, yes, I could understand if Trump is feeling outgunned. He has got the A-team against him and his lawyers, to put it politely, are giving the Keystone cops a run for their money. They're not top lawyers. They're personal lawyers. They're tabloid lawyers. They're non-disclosure arrangement arrangers with porn stars and so forth. But they're not the top rank of lawyers. So there might be something to that. And Jeff, on the other hand, I guess if you look at what Trump's got going for him in this situation, he's got the ultra-partisanship of American politics, so that if we think back to the inevitable comparison of Watergate, in Watergate, there were figures like Senator Howard Baker, a Republican, who turned on Nixon. Is there any evidence that the Republican Party, if the Democrats were able to get an impeachment process going, wouldn't just stand with Trump, as the Democrats, to be fair, stood with Clinton when he was impeached? Well, that's the great question. I mean, I suppose in the next couple of months, that Mueller was to come out with this really concrete evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. What would then happen? And so far, the Republicans have been telling us that actually they're probably not going to do very much. I mean, Trump got away with firing his FBI director, James Comey, and then went on television to say that he fired him because he wanted to close down the investigation to Russia. And nothing happened. The Republican Party basically did not lift a finger. Even the last couple of months, he's been demonizing the FBI, demonizing the most prestigious, important bit of American law enforcement, something that you know, previously you thought of as being something the Republican Party would take incredibly seriously. He's gone after and demonized its leadership, demonized its work. 
and again, got away with it. The Republican Party has not really said anything. So you know, there's a very high chance that unless Mueller came up with something that was utterly, utterly convincing and copper-bottomed, that the Republican Party wouldn't really turn against Trump at this stage. And indeed, we've got, a, in a way, in another field, an indication of how the Republican Party can just dig its heels in, in the most impossible-seeming situations after this terrible gun massacre in Florida, and yet they don't seem inclined to move on gun control, even faced with the weeping victims asking them to do something, Ed. Yeah, most of the party is digging its heels in. I mean, as you know, the National Rifle Association has a great hold over most elected Republicans, starting with Donald Trump, on whose campaign it spent $30 million. That said, the reaction of the students at the school which has gone viral and sort of produced hashtag never again kind of social media campaigns is, if not an equal, it's certainly an opposing pressure on many elected Republicans. Marco Rubio, one of the two Florida senators, is, as is his want, now prevaricating and musing openly about having stricter background checks on gun purchases and other fairly mild measures that are supported by the overwhelming majority of public opinion. But against that is this amazingly organized single issue group, the NRA, which I'd probably say is the single most effective advocacy group in American politics. Maybe APAC would be up there, but it would be one of the top two or three. And Jeff, I mean, you lived in the United States for some years and therefore by the law of averages, were around when there were quite a few gun massacres. Does this one feel at all different because of the mobilisation of the students who are, you know, from a Republican state, middle-class white kids who have turned on Trump with fury and articulacy? It does feel a little bit different. I mean, there has been, after each of these massacres, and there have been so many, and just in the five years I lived in the States, I was around for so many of them. There was this incredibly depressing ritual where people were be indignant and angry, and then it would just go away because there was this sort of passivity, the realisation that politics will never change. And what we saw was a kind of fascinating example of how politics really works at the moment. I mean, as Ed mentioned, most of the gun control measures that are being proposed at the moment have huge majorities of public opinion behind them. But what the NRA has on its side, and especially in this era of social media, is intensity. And it's intensity that works in politics. When your group is really, really motivated behind an issue, that overcomes large amounts of public opinion against you. But what we're maybe starting to see, and it is just a maybe with these students, is a much more intensity on the other side, is on the on the gun control advocate side. And that would be very important if that was followed through. But we are just a week after the event or so. It's still early days. You know, this could just kind of play itself out, wash itself out in the way that it did after, say, the Newtown massacre four years ago as well. So we, it's a bit too early to call it. But something interesting does seem to be happening. Thanks. And just to conclude, then, let's get from both of you an assessment of where the Trump presidency stands, because just a few weeks ago, I was at this famous, notorious event, the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I got the strong sense that, at least from the business people, that Trump was being normalised, that after about a year, people were beginning to say, well, yeah, you know, he's pretty outrageous in his style, but the world hasn't ended. And in fact, he's even done some good things. He's passed this big tax cut. The markets are strong, as Trump himself continued to insist. The economy is doing well. So maybe this presidency won't be a disaster. Maybe it will actually be a success. Do you think that mood was there, Ed, and is dissipating again? Or do we just have to get used to moods whipsawing around in this very volatile era? I think more the latter, the whipsawing. I mean, he has 
benefited from inheriting a fairly good economy and tax cuts are being credited for that. But he picked up a pretty good economy, run pretty well by the Fed. And whilst that lasts, his opinion ratings are going to be relatively high compared to what you'd expect them. He has, as we've discussed, got a fiercely loyal base. And the Democratic Party haven't got their act together. So, you know, if you were to ask me to sort of shoot at the wind and predict who would win in 2020, Trump versus a generic Democratic nominee, I would give it even odds right now. That said, Trump is Trump. He's a highly volatile character. The Russia investigation is deadly serious. And it is his most neuralgic spot. It bends him out of shape. And we saw that with the gun issue. He blamed it on the FBI, diverting its resources to investigating him in Russia. That kind of thing is enormously distortionary and has huge sort of blowback effects on his presidency. So I'd go with the unpredictability. And Jeff? I think, yeah, we often measure American presence by whether they're re-elected or not. That's in some ways a kind of key metric. And I'd say, given the economic circumstances that he has of 4% unemployment and wages beginning to pick up after a very, very long fallow period after the financial crisis, any other president would be a shoe-in for re-election at this stage. If Trump had come back after Christmas and just basically shut up for the last six weeks, all the news would have been about new investments, wages rising, the, you know, the feel-good factor in the economy, and he would be at 55 60%. But he's still, even with all that wind behind him, he's still the most unpopular president ever at this stage in his presidency. So I do think that his capacity to take a very favourable hand and play it badly still seems to me the kind of key factor here. OK, well, with that thought, we'll leave it here for now. Thank you very much indeed to Jeff Dye here in the studio and to Edward Luce in Washington. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.